0: If you have your Bibles, if you would, open them to Romans chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to be reading out of the NASB translation. Um, we may, if you're following on screen, it may be an actual NIV translation. Uh, there will be a little bit of variance, but you'll be able to uh, see what we're, what we're speaking of. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3, and that's where we're going to kind of camp out this morning. We're going to bounce around to a lot of different scriptures, um, Old and New Testament, if you want to try and follow and play the game you can but if if not you can camp out in Romans chapter 3. We're going to read verses 21 all the way down to 28 this morning. But now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and of by the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith In Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through redemption in Christ Jesus. For God displayed public appreciation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Let's pray. Father, we come before you just mere creation. We come before you fallen. We come before you in sin. We come before you humbled. But Lord, we know that you are creator of all things. And we know that by your grace, you justify your creation, even in our sin. And God, we're so thankful for that. Lord, we pray that the scriptures speak to our heart this morning, and we pray that we leave here worshiping, that we leave here following your word, and that we leave here reflecting on your might and your glory, all for the glory of your name. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your grace. In your name I pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be talking about the doctrine or the teaching of justification Um, This is such a cornerstone of our Christian faith, this doctrine or teaching, and to really understand it, first of all, let's back up to that word justified. If you are justified for something, it usually means you're being justified for being guilty of something. Think about a time in your life when you did something wrong, but someone stepped in and justified you and you didn't get the punishment. There was a time um, in high school we went on a wrestling tournament. I will leave the school nameless. Um, as teenage boys do, in between sessions, I don't know if you've been to a wrestling tournament, it's very long. In between sessions, we would go into the school and goof off and you know hang out, and we were in the auditorium of this big performing arts theater. W- theater Woodland has an amazing performing arts theater, that's not the school, but this school we were in Times it by two. It was it was beautiful. We had plenty of room to run and be rambunctious. Well, one of my good friends at the time, whose name will be hidden, um, got upset because the horseplay maybe went to another level, and he may have gotten hit in the face with an object. And so, as a result of that, he completely destroyed the equipment. Thousands of dollars of damage done. Serious, serious fines being placed, not only on him, but on Cass High School, the school that I attended, and it was serious, serious problems. Very much pressure put on the coaching staff and the administration, and my friend, whose name will remain hidden, was in big trouble. But his father cut a check to the school, paid the fine, and my friend got away. He didn't have any, any, um, any punishment. The school that received the damage saw the payment, accepted it, and he was justified. And said, "You know what? He's fine. Whatever. We won't press charges. We won't move forward." The school, my school, didn't really do any administrative, um, punishment for him. And he got a few sprints at practice. Um, but other than that, he was completely justified because his fine had been paid. He was paid in full. Even though he was guilty, I mean, they probably still have the tapes, he was guilty, but he was paid and he was justified and released from punishment. You see, as Christians, this doctrine of justification speaks to us dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses, breakers of God's law, but yet God in his grace sees us as justified. We'll lay that out this morning. But to truly understand this doctrine, as we just laid out the word, what justified truly is, we have to know where we are as creation. You see, in the beginning, God created man. He created the world and mankind. And the goal of mankind, what he created mankind to be, was an image of him. We were created to bear his image, to be his image. That was the plan. And what's God's image? God's image is good. I know you're probably thinking to yourself, that's not really a... A great word to describe God, good. If you look in the dictionary of the word good, there's over 40 definitions. And the first one, morally perfect. That's God. He's morally perfect in every way. Knowing of all things. He knows all things. He created all things. He He has this world in the palm of his hand. His image was good. Is good. And that's what we were supposed to be. Well, you know the story. Adam and Eve, the first two humans created to bear God's image, turned against their creator by way of deception, by way of trickery of the serpent or Satan. They were instructed not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that's just what they did. And by way of that, they received knowledge of good and evil. And so what followed is mankind's uh, curse, that fell upon us. Because mankind originally sinned against God in the beginning, direct violation of what he ordered, mankind was cursed. And God the, uh, describes this curse in Genesis. For, for Eve, the woman, childbearing pains, unbearably painful. And for Adam, the man, he'd have to earn his keep by the sweat of his brow, making labor extremely hard. Nothing would come, e- come easy to him. And so, what we see here now and what follows is evil enters the world. Moving forward, evil consumed the world and the world became broken. In fact, you're seeing that in the news right now. We're seeing evil take place in the news right now. And I don't have to go into detail to describe it. You know what's going on in this world. But along with it comes sickness, depression, and death itself, among other things. It was not part of the plan for, this to be a, for, for the world to fall to this state. So how does that trickle down to us? Well, Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 7 through 8. says this, But because the mind is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are, who are in the flesh cannot please God. What Paul is saying here is that because of original sin and the curse, our hearts are naturally hostile to God, natural rebels to God. We don't desire God's law naturally. We reject it. And you see it in the very next chapter of Genesis. The the children of Adam and Eve, what did they do? You know the story. Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy and wickedness. And because of this act, these acts of sin that has just encompassed our world, there's a wedge that has come between mankind's heart and God's law. And that wedge is sin. You see, sin is direct disobedience of God's law. It's direct disobedience to his image and what he had created for mankind. And you see, we've got to come to a hard truth, you and I, about our sin. We've got to come to a realization. The truth is, we like sin. We desire it. We can't get around that. Our fallen state has caused us to chase lust, to chase chase hatred, drunkenness, just a few. Even the most sanctified and devout Christians will always fight this battle. You will always fight a battle of sin because of our fallen state. God does save. God does transform the heart, but we will not be out of a fallen state until Jesus returns. And you will always fight this battle. And we have to understand this, our relationship with this. We desire our sin, but we've got to understand that God hates sin. He hates sin. It's direct violation of his law. It's direct violation of his image. And his, his dealing with sin is displayed all throughout Scripture. He went so far as to bring a flood to wipe out a wicked world at that time in Genesis. In Leviticus chapter 20, the result of breaking God's law was such of adultery or, the, or, or his law of um, uh, not honoring your parents. The result of these broken laws were death, put to death. And I know what you're saying to yourself, Joe, that's Old Testament stuff. We don't, we don't, we don't deal with that anymore. That's Old Testament. I, I, there is a new covenant. Jesus brought a new covenant. You are right about that. But I would just encourage you to turn to the book of Acts in chapter 5. Ananias and his wife Sapphira in the newly formed church congregation after the day of Pentecost, the newly formed church body. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied about an offering they made from selling church pro- or selling their property. And during a worship service, God struck them both dead because he hates sin. And what does that leave us? So if we desire sin, God hates it. What does that leave us? As we've said, it leaves us hostile towards God, habitual breakers of his law, and we we do not desire his heart, even the saved. We have to fight the battle. We have to continuously fight. Some of you may disagree with me and say, no, I'm a good person. We always hear that, right? He's a good person. She's a good person. And you may say to me, no, I'm a good person. And I understand what you're saying, but biblically, I have to ask you a couple loving questions. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever taken God's name in vain? And yes, OMG does count. If you can raise your hand to those questions, and I've got two up. You've broken God's law. And I know what you're thinking. That's probably, that's just 10 commandments. Again, New Covenant, Joe, wake up, 10 commandments. Well, you're right about that, but I would tell you that Jesus took God's law and took it to a whole nother level. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 39 says, you shall love your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The love that God requires for us to give him, we cannot give because of our state. We cannot love love our God with every ounce of heart, soul, and mind in our body. We cannot put our neighbor on the same platform as ourselves. We can't do it. As fallen in Adam and original sin, we just cannot do it. In Matthew chapter 5, the, um, the famous ver- uh, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes the practical part of God's law to another level. He says that if you've ever looked at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. If you're angry with your brother, then you've committed murder in your heart. Jesus takes this law to another level to a way that a fallen state can not keep it. Can you imagine being at that sermon, by the way? I don't know if you've read the whole thing, but it, if you read the whole thing, just picture yourself attending that sermon. You're A lot of pulling at the collars walking away from that one. So where does that leave us? Here's a quick summation. We've broken God's law. We have to face him on judgment day, and his judgment comes down. Romans chapter 6, first part of Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. You see, wages aren't given out as an obligation. Wages are earned. If you work 40 hours a week, 40 hours for the week at your job, you're going to earn 40 hours worth of wages. And because we've broken God's law, we've earned these wages. We've earned His penalty, His harsh penalty that comes down from, from His hatred for sin and His hatred for His law being broken. We stand before God guilty in sin. We stand before God guilty of breaking his law. And we will be judged by a holy God. A God who is so holy, he's created the heavens, he created the earth, he gave you and I life. And he's so holy that when Moses asked for him to reveal himself to him, God revealed himself and Moses couldn't even look at him. He had to hide his face. He couldn't look at him, he couldn't face him. That's the God that we will stand before. But the second part of that verse I read you in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, second part says this, but the free gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will stand before God guilty, but because every bit of wrath that God has, you know, the Bible says He stores every time you sin, he stores up his wrath, but every bit of wrath he stores up. He's every bit of grace, and he's also every bit of love. Because he loves the world, and he loves you, and he loves me, he made a way for you to be justified. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, to live on this earth, to dwell on this earth, to keep God's law, to perfectly keep his law, the only man to ever keep God's law. The most innocent man in the world, he kept God's law, and he lived a perfect life. And then he was wrongly accused, he was punished, he was beaten, he was tortured, whipped, flogged, and willingly took it. And then he went to a cross, was nailed, and hung. And he died and suffered a death and rose the the third day. And he did that to pay for your judgment. He did that to pay for the world's judgment. And because of his willing work on the cross, Because of the work that he did, you and I can stand before that holy God and stand before him and he sees us in our guilt, but he also sees you as justified because another has stepped in and paid your fine. Jesus Christ paid the fine that we deserve from our sin. He took the punishment and now you stand before God justified in his eyes. Amen. Amazing. Amazing. It's amazing news. So this morning, we're going to look at that doctrine, and we're going to look at three aspects of it. We're going to look at how we are justified by his grace through faith alone. We're going to look at the legal implications of his justification, and then we're going to look at our response, what our response should be. And I really hate to ask this, but if somebody could, a bottle of water would be amazing if anybody's available to do so. Going back to our base text, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, it says this For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Man in its fallen state cannot save itself. We are fallen. We are fallen from original sin. But God in his grace, His holy and loving grace gives it freely to his people. He gives his grace to those who he calls. He gives his grace to those who love him. He gives his grace to those who have faith in Jesus. And we're going to continue on to verse 25. Whom displayed a public propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness Righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. In that verse, I want to look at two words. The first word, propitiation, can also be seen as satisfaction. God's wrath for sin, his wrath for the sinner was seen as a propitiation on Jesus, a satisfaction on Jesus. So the wrath that the sinner deserves, the wrath that was inflicted upon him, was given, and it was freely given on Jesus. And so Jesus, taking the wrath of God, the wrath from God, satisfied his wrath. Jesus, the work, satisfied his wrath. And then the next word, forbearance. It was demonstrated his righteousness because in the forbearance, God, he passed over sins previously committed. Forbearance meaning restraint. So God put the wrath on Jesus. He restrained his wrath to the sinner, but who is that available to? It's the question we have to ask. Paul answers this in verse 26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thank you, brother. It's faith alone who gets this restraint. It's the one who has faith in Jesus alone who gets this straight. It's the one who has faith who doesn't take the wrath of God, but it's faith alone. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, Paul spells it out this way. For grace you have been saved by faith, and not of yourselves. It is not a gift it is a gift of God, not as the result of works, so that one may boast. You see, good deeds and doing a good thing, there's such a misconception of Christianity today. A lot of people think if you're going if you're a good person, you're gonna go to heaven. We've established we're not good. It's not good works that save you, it's faith alone in Jesus. The good works that a Christian produces is of the Holy Spirit working in their heart. It's of the Holy Spirit transforming a sinner's heart, and because of their faith, they, the works come out. Works, good works will not save you. Isaiah chapter, in chapter 64, verse 6, Isaiah says this, For all us have become like one who is unclean, and of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Because God is so good and so holy, your good deeds cannot reach his level of holiness. In fact, if you tried to do that, if you tried to rely on just your good deeds alone to save you, it would fail because if you took a log of your day, real true log, and compared it to God's law, truly compared it now I guarantee you, right-hand side of the column, good deeds. Left-hand side of the column, sin. I guarantee you that sin would outweigh the good. It's just how it is. It's just how it is. Your good deeds cannot save you. But the one who was good for you is Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life and kept God's law 100% perfectly. You don't have to carry that weight. You we should strive to, but Jesus was good for you. You see this in Matthew chapter 4, and I'm just going to paraphrase this story. We know about um, Jesus being tempted in the garden or being tempted by the devil, Satan threw all in the wilderness. Excuse me. Satan threw all of his tricks at Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus was on a forty-day fast. He tempted him with power. He tempted him with food. He tempted him by even quoting Scripture. He's, he quoted Psalms ninety-one. But Jesus did not relent. He did not give in because of his life. Because his life was perfect and sinless. We can rely on the life that he lived and the work that he did and not of our good works. That's why good works cannot save you. It's faith alone, first by the grace of God and faith alone in Jesus. I love what the great evangelist Ray Comfort says about this. Um, If you guys haven't seen him, Living Waters Ministry, I highly encourage you to watch his evangelism work. But he he tells people he speaks to, you know, a man trying to save himself by works is like a man standing on the edge of an airplane. His plan for salvation is to jump out and flap his arms as fast as he can. And he says, I, he said, don't do that. Put on the parachute. The parachute is Jesus. If you'll trust the parachute, put the parachute on, you'll land safely to the ground as opposed to thousands of miles on the ground. When we put on the parachute of Jesus and we put our full faith and trust in him, we will land safely safely into his hand. We will land safely into the God, the judgment of God's hand. We've got to trust the parachute of Jesus, and we've got to trust him through God's grace, or by God's grace, through faith alone. And You may very well understand that. I'm sure most of you do, but you may not understand the legal implications of this. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, or excuse 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 Pause this, Paul says this. For we all appear on the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, Paul stresses the fact that we will all stand before the perfect judge, the good judge that is God, and we will all stand before him. And in our sin, he will see us as justified because of the work that Jesus did. He will see us as justified if you've put your faith uh, faith and trust in his life, death, and burial, uh, burial and resurrection. God sees your sins and transfer, transfers them to the cross. So he can legally and rightly take your sin and dismiss your case because of what Jesus did. God can legally let you go. Because he's the good judge, because Jesus took the, took the punishment, he can legally and justly let you go. Jesus says something very interesting in John chapter 19, verse 30. He says these words, it is finished. That's a strange thing for someone to say as they die. It is finished. But what he's saying there is the job has been done. The debt has been paid. The sacrifice has been fulfilled. And now those who put their faith in Jesus can be justified in the eyes of God. That's what he's saying. It is finished. It is finished. Now our response to this, I want to look at three areas of what our response to this justification that God provided us should be. Moving on to Romans chapter 12. We see in verse 9 that Paul speaks to behavior of a Christian. And what he's really speaking to is behavior of a Christian that has the Holy Spirit inside of them. When you've accepted Christ and you put your faith in him, you're blessed by the gift of the Holy Spirit, which produces certain fruits. It produces things. Again, it's not what saves you, but it's the fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 9 says this. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So in, uh, in that, we see Paul tells us, run from evil, cling to what is good. We know God is good. We know God is the one that's good. So we need, in the face of evil, to cling to him, to run to him, to run to his word. Let it carry us through our life. We're surrounded by evil every day. We see it. But in the face of it, we've got to run to God through prayer, through his word, and cling to him and let him fight this evil. I like the story of David and Goliath. We like to infuse ourselves as David in that story. It's a very easy thing to do, that we're David and we're going to conquer these giants. Let God do it. Jesus is David. He conquered the Goliath of death. Let him be the one who handles that. Run to God. Run to what is good. God is good. Run to him in the face of evil. Verse 10, Paul says this, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. What he's talking about there is this family dynamic of a church family, of other believers. When the times of evil come, there's no better family than your church family. So we've got to, as the verse says, love, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, in a family love, to be there for one another. And I have to say, we've really, really seen that in this church through the history of its church. Anytime someone falls or anytime there's, ish, there's trouble or evil, we see our church loving each other. So keep up that work and make sure we can continue to do that. In verse 11 through 12, he says this, not lagging behind in diligence, or fervent hope, persevering in tribulation and devoted to prayer. He uses the word hope there. Hope, hope that one day this world will not win. One day the evil in this world will not win. It's already lost, but there's one day when Jesus will come, and he will return, and he will gather up his people. He will gather his believers, and he will finally crush the devil once and for all. That's the hope that Paul speaks to. That's how we should walk in response to our justification, walking in love and walking in hope, walking in joy for what Christ has done. The next area of response I want to look at is repentance. Repentance is essential to our faith. Repentance of sin is essential to our Christian belief. The Greek, it comes from a Greek word, metanoia, which means a change of mind. So when you repent from your sin, you change your mind about your sin. You change your views. I know when I became a Christian, there were things I didn't even know was a sin. But when I, when I accepted Christ, I changed my mind, turned from some of those things. And that's what repentance is. It's a godly sorrow of sin. Not a worldly sorrow, afraid of being caught, afraid of what the world may judge you, but a godly sorrow of what God thinks of your sin. That is real saving faith. Real saving faith will produce repentance. Now, in Luke chapter 13, paraphrase in verse 3, Jesus tells the Galileans, he tells them, unless you repent, you too will perish. He's given them a warning of judgment to come. He's telling them, you must repent. You must repent of your sin. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31. Paul preaches repentance when he continues his ministry in Athens, Greece. He says, therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring that men, that all people everywhere should should repent. Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge in righteousness through a man who has been appointed, having furnished the proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God's calling us to repent. God's calling the world to repent. His judgment's coming. We've got to repent. Now, repentance does not mean living a perfect life. Don't mistake what I'm saying here. Absolutely not. We've already established that we can't keep God's law. But when we do fall into sin, we confess it, we bring it to God, and we move forward, and we continue to grow in our sanctification. But repentance should see a change of mind about sin if you're a Christian here today and you fall into sin, get before the Lord and confess it. But I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, this morning, if you are diving headfirst into your sin, if they're like, like, the other, like the other people in the world, if we are diving headfirst into sin, willingly sinning against God, willingly jumping into our sin, we, I encourage you today, before you leave this morning— Get before the Lord and repent of your sin. Repent. We cannot just dive into our sin like unbelievers. We've got to get before the Lord and show genuine repentance. Charles Spurgeon, who was the prince of preachers, says this, that that true faith is not inseparable from true repentance. Repentance alone does not save you. It's faith in Jesus but true saving faith will show a repentant heart. It will show a heart of repentance, turning from sin. A good example of worldly sin or worldly sorrow. We can find it no further than Judas. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, who gave his location to the Pharisees for in exchange for money. Was, when, the, when the whole thing went down, Judas felt his worldly sorrow. He gave his money, tried to give his money back to the Pharisees. It, that did not satisfy his guilt. It did not satisfy his shame. And as we read, we know what happens. He hangs himself because of his worldly sorrow. There was no godly sorrow. There was no sin against God. There was no repentance. There was nothing like that. Judas's worldly, worldly sorrow is displayed in this chapter. We've got to keep a repentant heart. As a true believer and a true Christian of faith, keep a repentant heart. Continue to turn from sin. Continue to have a change of mind about sin. And make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep that repentant heart. The last thing, last point of our response to this beautiful doctrine of justification, I want to share with you in Matthew chapter 11. Now, if you read before the verses we'll be reading, you'll see that uh, Jesus goes through the cities of Chorosan, Bethsaida, and Capernaum and gives them a spiritual thumping. He goes through these cities chastising them, uh, 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 rebuking them for their lack of repentance and for their lack of faith in a Savior, their rejection of God. And then he comes and he gives this beautiful invitation. In verses 28 and 29, Come all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, you've got to understand what these Jews were going through at this time. They were going through serious persecution, not just from Rome, who was under rule at that time, but also from their own people, the Pharisees, the law keepers, They were taking the law and they were stoning people, killing people for their sin. And Jesus comes to these people and says, you don't have to carry that burden anymore. I have come. Lay your wearies on me. Lay your burdens on me and I will deliver you. That promise is true for us today. Because of what Christ has done. Because he lived a perfect life and died on a cross, and rose from the dead. Because of this, we are justified in the eyes of God by his grace and through your faith. And because of that, you are justified in his eyes. We can take rest in that. We don't have to carry the burden. We don't have to carry the burden of this world. Your sickness, your your depression, your failures. Yes, they're going to be there. Yes, they're not just going to disappear. We are in a fallen world, but you can take rest in the one thing that is true, and that's Christ's sacrifice. Things will change. I told myself I wasn't going to really speak on this, but the coronavirus has changed routines. It's changed lives. But what doesn't change is Christ's work. It's God's work, and we can take rest in that. That should be our response to justification. That should be our response. Walking by the Holy Spirit, having a repentant heart, and taking rest in what Christ has done. I want to close our time this morning with two appeals. I want to make an appeal first to the the Christian and then to the non-believer. Christians, because of God's grace, because you in your fallen state, and God's grace for you, he left his, he showed you grace by giving you a way out of his wrath, and it's your faith in what Jesus has done dying on the cross. You now, Because of your faith in this, you now stand before a holy God, stand before a God who's created everything, stand before a God who's given you life, who holds judgment, who is the perfect judge. You stand before him, and he will look at you, brother and sister, and he will say, you are justified. You are guilty in your sin, but you are justified by my son, Jesus. You're justified in Christ's work. Now, I want to encourage you this, and I'm talking to myself here, too. You've got the cure to spiritual cancer, what I call, in your pocket. There are souls rotting and dying every day. And like we mentioned earlier, every time someone sins, they store up wrath. God stores up wrath in heaven. And there are unbelievers out there storing up God's wrath. You've got the cure to spiritual cancer in your pocket. Don't be afraid to share it. Don't be afraid to give it away to them. Share your faith. I'm not saying that you have to stand on a corner and be a street preacher, although some of you may have that gift. I'm not saying that you have to give out gospel tracts every day. But you know your circles. You know your inner circles. Share your faith. You've got the cure to their everlasting life. I don't know if you guys have heard about um, a man named Penn Teller. He's a comedian, um, not Christian. Um, but he is a comedian, and he. But he made a he made a resounding comment. He said this: How much do you have to truly hate someone to know that there's everlasting life awaiting for them, and there's hell waiting for them if they don't receive it? How much do you have to hate someone to not share that? That's a pretty powerful statement. It's a very powerful statement. So I encourage you. Christian, walk in joy for your justification, but don't be afraid to share it. I know it's a hard thing to do, but don't be afraid to share it. My last appeal is for the unbeliever, who could quite possibly be sitting here today or listening, or what have you. You have to listen to me if you unbeliever, if you don't believe in God, you have to hear me. There is a God. And he created this world, and he created this earth, and he created you. This all didn't fall into place by some explosion. You think explosions cause order? They cause chaos. When you look at a building, you don't think of that building just fell into place. It has a maker. A painting doesn't paint itself. It has a maker. This world has a maker, and God is that maker. There's 130 million light cells in your eyes. You think that evolved from a fish? No. God has given you life, a heart, a conscience, and a soul, and God's law is written on everybody's hearts. And one day, there will be a day come where God will judge everyone, the righteous and the wicked. And the wicked, and you, don't have, you, can, you have to believe this, a wicked will be cast into hell For future and eternal torment, Jesus says it will be a place of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But God, in his love for the world, showed his grace by sending his son Jesus to the earth and dying a brutal, horrible death. But that death was a reflection of his punishment for the sinner. The world went dark when Jesus took his last breath. Some people say that's God leaving Jesus. I believe it's his judgment. Jesus says in verse 8 that um, I'm the light of the world, and whoever comes to me will never walk in darkness. God has given a way for you to be saved, and it's through faith alone in the one who lived a perfect life, who died a death, who died a death that when you accept Christ, you will be seen as justified in God's judgment. I plead for anyone who is listening to grab that truth, hold on to that truth, come before the Lord and say, God, I did not realize how serious my sin was. I did not serious how, uh, how bad of, of, a, of a disobedience it was to you. Lord, I believe in you. I believe that you've sent your son. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died on a cross to take my punishment so that I could be justified. And then, in the quiet of your heart, ask for forgiveness ask for faith, and put your faith and trust in Jesus, and repent of your sin. That's my appeal to you, unbeliever, if you're here or listening. God has provided justification for those who have faith in Jesus alone by his grace. One more analogy. It's as if I showed up to court. Some of you new drivers in here. This analogy might fit for you one day. You may show up for court with a mountain of speeding tickets. The judge says, in the case of insert name here, this is a very serious fine. You're facing harsh penalties, but somebody that you've never even met, somebody you don't even know, came in and paid your fine, and now you're free to go. We're justified by the work of Jesus, by God's grace, and through your faith alone in him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you broken. We come before you in sin. We come before you cursed from original sin of Adam and Eve. Father, we're thankful for your grace. You were not obligated to show us grace. You were not obligated to save but you did. For every bit of wrath you have, you have every bit of love. And God, we are thankful for your grace. We are thankful for sending your son, Jesus, to the earth to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, a brutal, horrible death, and to rise from the dead. And God, because of our faith in him, you see us as justified. We will stand before you one day on that great day of judgment. We will stand before you and you will look upon us as justified and righteous. And God, we are so thankful. Father, we ask that in response to this, we walk by your spirit, the Holy Spirit that's been blessed upon all of us, Lord, we ask that you just continue to let the Spirit work in our lives, that we continue to repent of sin and that we take rest in your promise. God, I pray for any soul who is watching this, who is not a true believer, to fear you. There is a hell, and you will send those who don't believe there, but there's also a heaven, and those who will humble themselves and believe in you, we believe you'll take them there. And God, we believe that our faith in Jesus will get us there. Lord, I pray that in this evil world, we don't see it as something that's overbearing. We see it as defeated because your son, Jesus, defeated it. It's already dead, and now we're just waiting on that day. God, I pray that you let us walk by the Spirit. I pray that you let us take rest in our justification by your grace. In your name I pray. Amen.